Welcome to the Dave and Marcia Show, the podcast for financial advisors that explores the entire financial ecosystem from the perspective of women and income. Here are your hosts, David Machia and Marcia Mantel. Hi, I'm David Machia. And I'm Marcia Mantel. And, and together, to our podcast. Yeah, we're the Dave and Marcia Show, everything about women and income. Marsha, I'm so excited. I am too. It's our first podcast, Dave. <laughs> it's our first podcast. Well, I tell you, audience, we're going to explore a lot of things in terms of retirement income and how they relate to women and income. And I'm thrilled that I have as my colleague in this podcast and co-host, a woman who's absolutely extraordinary. She's made a huge impact in the industry already. She's been soldiering in the retirement income space for, for years. And she's a bona fide expert on all dimensions of retirement income, especially, I'd say, Social Security and Medicare planning. I'm thrilled to know you, and I'm thrilled to, to be your colleague. Well, David, thank you so much. And, you know, I think back on our, you know, decades now <laughs> together, first meeting over conversations about retirement income. It was down in Florida at a RIA conference back, I want to say 2005, 2006, somewhere around there. And uh, you were already totally in on this retirement income thing and making it happen. And how does it happen? So I've loved watching your innovation over the years. And what you've come up with is nothing short of amazing. And I love that a man is a champion for us boomer women, Gen X women, and our millennial kids. So thank you for everything you're doing to move the agenda forward for us women who, you know, we have a brick wall to climb over. And you're you're too you're too kind. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Absolutely. But you know, you said something that resonated with me. You said we have a brick wall. Mm. Can you describe that brick wall a bit? Yeah, we do. So for women, you know, it's so interesting that um, our industry. So we're in the financial services and specifically the retirement industry. We always want women to do more, right? We ask her to plan better and learn to invest and ask the right questions. But for me, I, as a woman, you know, I take the step back and wonder and ask, how would she even know what the right questions are to ask? Like what in a woman's background and her upbringing and her education would give her this command of the financial complex industry? So here's how I actually wrote it. So as you know, David, I've written a few books um, as have you. So the, my first book was Retirement Planning. What's the deal with retirement planning for women? And the opening of the back, I think, describes what we're trying to address here. And I say, we women love to talk. No one would argue with that. And we talk about marriage and motherhood, Merlots and martinis, mammograms and menopause. But when it comes to money, that's the M word we don't talk about. And we just don't have anything in our backgrounds to talk about money. So we need to learn how to do that. And I think that's part of what you know our time together in this podcast is going to do. We are talking money and we're helping women tell their stories because they're all fascinating, every last one of them. And we're going to help integrate that into what she needs to know about her money. 
Very well said. And we're going to, you know, have that exploration and it's going to play out in a couple of ways. We'll be talking to industry leaders. We'll be talking to boomer women. We'll be talking to financial advisors. But on the topic of financial advisors, Marsha, you know, my conviction is that these problems can't be solved without the participation of males. If for no other reason, then 85% of the advisor population is male. And, you know, we have to confront some realities about that. There are reasons why seven out of 10 males are fired by boomer women widows after their husbands pass. That's not a good report card on the male relationship or lack of relationship with boomer women. That's something that we have to get our arms around and help male advisors be better at. Don't you agree? I really agree. And it's not because they don't care or that they don't have an interest, you know, in from a business side, from retaining the assets that they, they've brought in over the years. But I think men and women think so very differently. And women have not been well served by the men. Part of it is all these slick sales classes and such that the financial advisor males have gone through. And others, as I mentioned, you know, women don't feel they have a footing. They don't have a seat at the table where they can speak. They sit at the table. They've made dinner for the table, but they're not in the conversation. And it's up to the men to really help the women feel confident and comfortable having a conversation. So it is up to the men. And you're right, our industry, it's, it's shocking that after, I don't know, 30 years, we still only have somewhere between 10 and 15% of all financial advisors in every channel are, are women, just 10 to 15%. Yeah, it can't endure this way, by the way. It's no. impossible. And, you know, women, as you well know, get stereotyped mm-hmm. by the male financial advisor community. And I think it's arguable that males stereotype themselves into a role that's ill-fitting with the needs of boomer women. You know, the research that I've looked at over recent years is is very clear that what the industry is serving up, the male-dominated industry, misaligns with what women consider important in terms of their own investing preferences and objectives. And if you and I collectively can help bring this into alignment, I think we will have made a contribution to the industry that's really important. I agree. And it's on two fronts, right? It's helping the consumer the retiree, the boomer woman, the Gen X woman, um, have this retirement she so deserves confidently knowing that she's not going to run out of money and still gets to do fun things. And on the other side, you know, what we have in our industry, we are a quant industry. Everything is quantitative. You can measure everything. We've really taken it to you know, great heights. It's like putting a rocket ship on the moon is what we do in terms of this engineering and scientific background and data and quantitative analysis. That's all really important. And having financial goals is important if you're the advisor. But we have somehow pulled apart these two entities, the advisor and mostly his goals, and the woman who's going to end up holding all the money because, you know, as you do like to say and keep this top of mind, women are on par to, what would you call it? Uh, Have all the money. 
Yeah, control all the money. I mean, and, and, and think about it. I mean, we know from research that women prioritize their goals being understood. They want their values understood. They want the risk reduced. And this is not what we serve up primarily uh, at retirement to retirees. So this misalignment has to be fixed. And I, I think it's arguable. I know this is probably sounding like a provocative statement. It will be to some. But if you're a male advisor and you can't develop authentic relationships with boomer women, you might as well leave the business now because you have no future. And I say that because if you cannot develop an authentic relationship with the person who controls the money, then you have no chance to help them manage the money. Does that not make sense? Well, it does for me being the woman here, David. And it's in every part of our industry. And my personal example is actually with an attorney it took, so I'm married, you know, my husband, Dan, he's wonderful. Uh, Dan and I have been married a long time. And Dan and I were shopping for an attorney. And we went to one person, highly recommended, very knowledgeable, estate planning attorney, very, very knowledgeable, had written a book. You know, we talked to this, we, we went for a meeting, a meet and greet. And after 10 minutes, I was sort of squirming in my chair because he hadn't yet looked at me. So when we finished the very boring, brutal hour, um, I walked out and, and Dan said, hey, this guy was great. And I, <laughs> I said, we're never going back. So we went to attorney number two, still shopping around. This time, the guy couldn't look me in my eyes. He was looking somewhat south. It's like, really, buddy? I'm a 40-year-old mother of two kids just trying to get through the day. You can't look me in the eye. We walked out. Dan said, hey, he wasn't bad. <laughs> I said, we're never going back to see that guy again. It took three tries. We've got a great estate planning attorney now. Not only does he talk to me, he knows that I come in with a picture. And I mean, literally like a piece of paper with, you know, words and box, actually boxes on it. Because I need to understand things in a certain way. And he will adapt to what I need to understand, translate it for me, and make sure I understand what I'm giving up when we have a trust versus what happens if we don't have a trust. Mm -hmm. And then he can turn around and talk to Dan in the more technical language that Dan's comfortable with. And that's what we need to do. And my big message to advisors, just to wrap this part up, is don't think just because you know, the little woman didn't say anything in that meeting that she isn't the one in control. She is totally yes. one. Making totally. And, you know, they, you know, advisors tend to make false assumptions when I say those two attorneys made false assumptions for sure. Right. Exactly. That you were less, less knowledgeable, perhaps, mm -hmm. or maybe they saw your nodding as agreement when it wasn't right. <laughs> yes. So um, this, this, is, this is something that I think can only re be resolved by coaching. Those first two attorneys need to go to a coaching session on how to, how to work with women because they're going to suffer the same consequences, I think, of being less successful than your third attorney who ultimately you hired, right? Yeah, right. right. This, this, is, this is one of the issues that we have to help with.
right? Giving men the insights. If, if we can have a podcast that helps men gain insights, that help them develop relationships with boomer women, again, we will have done something good, I think. I totally agree. And I will also say that the women really need and want this kind of help. We don't want to be sold stuff. We don't want to use car salesmen. We want to understand what we have and where we can take it you know, for our families. Can you talk about what I feel is an intrinsic desire among many women for safeguarding what's been accumulated and reducing risk generally? Do you see that as a dynamic that cuts across many women? Yes, though maybe not articulated quite that way. So women are somewhat fearful, I would say, and this is broad, broad strokes here with yep. not every woman fits this profile, of course, but um, broadly speaking for women, we are concerned about whether our money will really last. We're sort of getting the hang of the idea that we're going to live a long time. And that's a good thing. But will the money be there? And how do we really know? Like, how can you be confident that you think that million dollars that you have could really stretch when you still want to buy things for your grandkids and you want to go on some trips and you want a new kitchen? They're going to do a reno on the kitchen. You know, so you're spending and we're really comfortable on the spending side because that's what we've done for our entire lives. We've, we, we spend on behalf of the family. We're the grocery shoppers, if you will. So we know that there's spending involved, but we don't know how we know it's going to be there for us when we're in our old age. And very often, many women today, boomer women whose mothers are still alive, and that's a great many, um, they see you know not only the aging process, but sometimes and often they see mom is running out of money. So we're sort of living it by watching what, you know, mom or our aunts or, you know, the older generation are going through. And so we need some, some level of confidence. And in plain words, how do you know? If you're the advisor, how do you know my money isn't going to run out? What do you have in that arsenal? Well, let, 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 let me speak about that for a little bit, because this is, this is a pet issue of mine. Hmm. Um, you know, the research is very clear from McKinsey and others, BlackRock, that the majority of women worry about outliving their income. Okay, worry is a powerful word. That means someone's, someone's upset, maybe not sleeping that well at night, concerned about this key issue. Yet the financial advisor community, you know, serves up a strategy, typically, which I would describe as a systematic withdrawal, and maybe they use a Monte Carlo simulation to support that which develops a confidence rate, a la I'm 90% confident that you'll have an income that lasts, truly misaligned with what women need. And, and one of the things that, you know, you, you mentioned RIA meeting 2006. Yeah. In 2006, we were saying that in order to create robust retirement income solutions that best serve most people, you needed to combine the competencies of various business silos. That meant that you needed to join the asset management and insurance 
competencies together inside a strategy. And I'd like to say that since 2006, a lot of progress has been made on that front, but I can't because people, even to this day, the majority of financial advisors tend to think that their solution is the solution. And only. And only. And if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? So, you know, this is the misalignment. If I'm an investment advisor, if I'm a registered investment advisor, if I, if I you know, work with markets-based answers to retirement income, I'm by definition part of the great mismatch, right? So this is why annuities, which are a highly charged issue, become very important. And I believe that the RIA community, which has enjoyed tremendous growth, is really in a sense, looking at jeopardy down the road. Because inevitably, if your solution set is misaligned with the customer's desires, you're going to lose market share. And I think that RIAs will risk losing clients and losing AUM, potentially at a significant level, if they don't get this annuity issue under control. If you're going to be delivering retirement income strategies to women and their greater longevity being a primary factor of concern, and you fail to address the longevity issue, you don't deserve to be helping them. Is that too radical in your view? It is not. I think it is an indictment, if you will, of our industry, but also with a solution. You know, there is a solution here. And it's not that we need to invent a new product or it's not that we need to think in a new way. Well, maybe we have to think in a new way. We have to team up, right? We've got investments. We need investments when we've got a 30-year runway still. You know, that is not short-term investing. But we also need, and I think what's hard in the industry, on the RIA and the investment side, they think total return, right? This is what they're, again, quantitative. Total return, try to beat inflation, try to make sure you've got your growth and accumulation still happening, even in retirement income. On the annuity side, though, it actually addresses how women think about money, which is cash flow. Cash is king. And we can have all the investments we want, but you know what, David? No one at the grocery store takes my investments. I got to have cash. Yeah. And if I want to go on vacation, I need cash. And if I want something for the kids or the grandkids, I need cash. So we need to marry these two sides. Of, yes, we still need growth, and that's very often on the investment side, but we need cash. And the not only I hope to have cash, or I, I hope 90% of the time I have cash, that is not a retirement income strategy. It's, it's not, Marsha. And, you know, I, I try to rem remind advisors all the time. I heard, you know, the Nobel Prize winning economist Robert Merton say something at an MIT meeting once that really resonated with me, made a huge impact. And he said, in retirement, it's your income, not your wealth, that creates your standard of living. It's all about income. And, you know, the, the second principle is no retiree stops needing income. No, 
And Not that last ten percent of their life, right? Right. Ninety percent. I got you ninety percent of the way there, Marsha. And, I, and I would. Mind. And we have made some progress. I mean, you know, God knows I've been working on solutions like the Income for Life model for years, and we've made some some discernible progress with you know hybrid reps and in the independent broker dealer space. But the RIA community has not come along, and it's got to get its arms around this annuity issue. And I would remind RIAs that everything that you may think that is bad about annuities has been addressed. There are many annuities available with no commissions and little or no fees. They're pure insurance uh, vehicles, and they need to be incorporated into retirement income strategies, especially for women, lest you suffer the consequences of what's inevitable, I think the loss of clients. Yes. I do think that is going to become a bigger and bigger issue for the investment community as women get smarter and smarter and demand cash, demand income. And I need to know where it's coming from. Don't give me a, a theory and a concept. I want to actually know, like today, I know where my income comes from. You know, Dan works, I work, we have a paycheck. So we have cash. We also have investments, right? But now, you know, a few years from now when we retire, so does the paycheck. That's you know, right. That goes away. So where's the cash come from? And don't say, oh, we're going to, you know, do total return and peel off X percent of your portfolio every year. I don't really know what that means. What, what are you doing with my investments? But if we can get to social security as the bottom layer of the multi-tier layer cake, social security, you make good decisions about that. That's your bottom layer. And then the next layer still needs to be a guaranteed income. I need to know that some, it might not be every dollar I need, but the vast majority of what I must pay for every month is going to be available for me to pay. And we, we really need to get our arms back around cash is king in retirement. No question, Marsha. Many ways to deliver it. That's right. There's no, there's no question. And we have to get our, our arms around the fact that the income producing value of cash changes all the time. Yes. You know, we, we've gone through a incredible, you know, variety of interest rate from zero to something, you know, it's back. But in that long period when, when rates were low, you know, the value of cash was less in terms of income producing assets. So this this really signifies why people need a thoughtful, you know, plan for retirement income distribution that has the upside growth potential we need, but also the downside protection. You know, the other thing that irks me a little bit is that, you know, we, we came off a situation where the market went up for 13 straight years. And that's never happened before. And I think a lot of advisors got to believe that inevitably markets go up. And I, I, tell, them this little, I tell them this little story, you know, in, in 1988 and 89, I was hired by a brokerage firm that was then known as Payne Weber. Do you remember that firm? Oh, I remember them, yeah. Yeah. And so I had developed a concept for retirement security using life insurance. And they hired me as a consultant to go traveling around the country for two years. So I'd show up in Kansas City tonight and Phoenix the next night and Pittsburgh the next night. I'd walk into a four-star hotel and go into the ballroom and there'd be three or 400 people there. They were invited by maybe 30 or 40 brokers. And I'd get up on stage and I'd make this presentation and then I'd leave, go to the next city. And then following me, the brokers would follow up with their customers and write, right business. And it was very, very successful. 
But in that presentation, in that hour-long presentation, there was a 10-minute section about Japan. And Japan at that time, in 1988 and 1989, was really scary to a lot of Americans. Their economy was surging. It seemed like they were going to overtake us as the number one economy. Remember the Toyota and Datsuns and Nissans were coming over here, and, and Sony had created the consumer electronics business. Yes. And they were buying a lot of American assets like uh, Columbia Pictures and the Pebble Beach Golf Club and the Rockefeller Center and, uh, you know, Firestone Rubber. All of these companies were being made J Japanese. And the Japanese at that time, unlike America, we had a low savings rate. They had the highest savings rate in the, in the, in the world, 14.5%. They had the highest stock market. They had the most expensive real estate. The Nikkei, the equivalent of the S&P 500, topped out in December of 1989 at 39,300. How many years later are we? 34 years? Yeah. It's never reached where it was in 1989. So what that tells me is you can't believe that stocks always go up. It's proven that they don't always go up, which is another reason we have to build protection into strategies. We, I, I love that story. Um, didn't remember all that detail. I went to Japan in 2006, I want to say, and had never seen an aged society. Mm. And it was fascinating. Now, in Japan, I will say the older citizens are respected and revered. Yes. Yep. Um, not so much here. You know, we're, we're more of an inconvenience here in yep. America. Right. But it was fascinating to observe you know, for the short time I was there, how an aging population actually looks on the street. Yeah. And that has stuck with me, that that's what we're preparing for. And with pensions and promises, there's not a lot of worry if you can eat, if you can go see a show, if you can travel on the bullet train to see your family in another part of Japan. You know, it, it's all baked in. And we're maybe a little more independently spirited here. Mm -hmm. And that's great. But we can't eliminate that foundation, that income, that knowledge of I'll be okay. I'm so good. true. So and true. I don't have to worry about what the market, you know, it drives me nuts, frankly, David, that as this market has been very volatile. People think volatility is market downs, not market ups. And it yeah. is this jaggedness. It's the Grand Teton effect that is volatility. We shouldn't need to care about that. Everyone is spinning. Oh, my God, the market went down today. Oh, my God, well, this has happened. This is tragic. This is terrible. Uh, you know, sit down. It's not a problem. This is how market cycles go. This is what happens in a in a healthy, rollicking economy. Things go up. But but if if you have a markets based answer for retirement income without a downside protection, you better be worrying about it because you can't stop worrying about it. That's the problem. Right. And so right, if you don't have those two base layers of your cake, and maybe three, if you still have a pension, you know, we always talk in the industry, well, all the pensions are gone. Let me tell you, David, the pensions are not gone. Yeah. There are whole there are millions upon tens of millions of people who have private pensions, 
who mm-hmm. have public pensions yeah. and they need to incorporate those into their planning. And that you can have your entire essentials and discretionary income needs covered with social security, pension, and an annuity. And who cares what the market is doing? That's- let me bring up, let me just hit on these two words you just said, because I, I get, and I know you agree with me. I, I, I get sort of upset over the, oh, the lightning rod that social security and those two words, you know, become yeah. you know, when people think that it's going to fail. And uh, it, it's, it's really nerve wracking. And I, I, and I, I defer to you on all questions, social security and Medicare. I know of no expert that's greater than you in this regard. But talk about the fact that Social Security is not going bankrupt. Well, thank you. You know, that's the one topic that sets my hair on fire <laughs> every time I see that headline. It's not going bankrupt, people, even though I know the media says it is. And it really is about um, a couple of things. Key things to take away with Social Security, and we can do a podcast just on all the fun with Social Security another time. But Social Security is a law, first and foremost. It is, in fact, a gigantic law. It's something like 4,800 pages long. Nothing moves through Congress quickly, as we may know at this stage. And Social Security is a law that can only be changed by the Congress. Uh, It's sturdy, but with a little wobble in it right now. Because it is funded, it's a self-funding program or a pay-to-play program. So we're all paying in with our FICA taxes. My dad always laughs and checks in. I have a brother and a sister, checks in with us at the holidays. Hey, are you guys working? It's like, yeah, dad, we're working. (laughs) Great, (laughs) thanks for my social security check. (laughs) You know, because we're all paying in and the payouts go to those who already paid in. And that's how it works. But there's a little bit of an imbalance or misalignment. I love that word that you use. There is a misalignment right now. There's not enough cash going into the big checking account. That's all Social Security is, is a gigantic checking account with a little savings account where all the surplus has been building up over years. Mm -hmm. So we bring money in, it pays out, and it should be dollar for dollar. But right now it's not. Too many of us boomers are retiring and too few workers are fueling the checking account. So... Social Security is tapped into the reserve account, the savings account. And that's what the entire issue is about, that the savings account is being used to meet 100% of the benefits. But the savings account won't last forever. It'll last maybe about 10, 12 more years. And at that point, number one, Social Security does not go bankrupt. It's just the savings account has been used up. But the, the implication of that is that the beneficiaries at that time would not be able to receive 100% of the benefits due to them. And that's what Congress has to fix. Yeah. I think of it as like health insurance, Marsha. You know, what happens? Health insurance doesn't go bye-bye if the premium gets adjusted. Yeah, right? exactly. So it, it's going to be like that. The premium will be adjusted. The system's not going anywhere. No. And I'm not even convinced the benefits will be reduced. But I think the premiums will go up. I agree with you. I, Congress, the, so the last time Social Security went bankrupt was 1982. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden in 1983, we had these massive 1983 amendments to the law that is Social Security. And that's where we got extended um, retirement 
full retirement ages. Yep. So instead of 65, it goes to 67, more taxation on benefits, a number of those kinds of things to increase the revenue, but not decrease the payouts. Right. And the same thing will happen this time. So it's just, if we know enough about how the law works and with the expectations of the Congress, and all of them would like to be reelected, mm -hmm. it will it will take care of itself. But I just hate that we stir up the pot and make it seem that there is this disaster right like right there, yeah. and then people make bad decisions. That's and right. Well, and they and do I, make. They claim early. I got to get mine now while I can. And I hear that, David, when yeah. people call or when I talk to, I just came back from a conference, and the advisors share that their clients are saying. And not all of them, but you know, it's important to every person. So anyone saying, I have to get mine now, it is not going to be there. I'm, I'm going in now. Yeah. And it's like, oh, the other thing I remind people of is that social security is the checking account analogy is brilliant from the perspective of funding, but it really is a system of old age annuities. Yes, it is. Right. And so if you like your annuity from social security, you should like your annuity from an insurance company. It's a monthly check that you can count on. It, and that's what it comes down to. It is this check you can count on. Right. And it was interesting, the, the history of Social Security, which I just love, I want to say it was FDR who said, but it could have been a researcher before him, said, as they were trying to decide, do we have put a social insurance program in place or not? And they said that it is impossible for individuals to amass enough money to provide for a long retirement on their own. It must be a pooled insurance yep. program. We have to have a pool in order to help everyone who lives a long time make sure they stay out of poverty. And in, in that regard, you know, the, the example is the first person, the very first beneficiary of Social Security was a woman named Ida Mae Fuller. Yes. I think she collected her benefit in 1937, 38. 1940. Oh, 1940. She lived to 1975. Yeah. Right? Talk about 100. pooling. 99 right. or 100. Right. Yeah. To 100. So what a classic, you know, example, the very first you beneficiary. Were, you, couldn't, you couldn't make this stuff up, right? You know, you, real you, life is always more interesting than you fiction. You can't. You can't. And it, it's wonderful. I want to ask you a question. Going back to the advisor population and the small percentage of them relatively being women, What's your advice to female advisors as they look at this wonderful opportunity of helping people, especially women, you know, plan retirement income? From the women brethren out there, this is a long game. It's a relationship game. And what I see with the women advisors, many of them are young and they have young families and it is a real struggle to balance career and family. I would say it's an impossibility. So keep your eye on the long term. Um, focus on women, focus on the education that you're providing women in words that we understand and know that you're doing a good job. Just hang in there because both you and your clients will grow through this, this era and you come out on the other side with these very, very strong relationships intact so that moving clients into the income phase, they already 
know you, they trust you, they've been with you for the long haul. And that's a, an, an important piece. Women like long-term friendships. And that's really what you're building. And women do it better than anybody. No doubt. Sage advice. You know, I, I want to be mindful of the fact and, you know, I'm seeing it right now in my own life, but women have some built-in disadvantages in terms of creating retirement security, child raising, pulling them out of the workforce, caregiving to elderly parents. My wife is dealing right now with trying to help as best she can, and she's doing a great job. A mom and dad who are 90 and 91, respectively. Wow. Uh, you know, when you leave the workforce, as you well know, it lowers your salary. The implications are lower social security benefits and lower savings, higher healthcare costs, greater longevity. What a mix of challenges that women face that men don't. Yeah. We're going to try to help as best we can. And that's really important. That level of understanding goes so much further than men may realize. We need to be heard. We need to be acknowledged for these other roads that we have to travel in our families. And we don't always need the problem solved. We just need to be listened to and heard. Then we can solve problems. So yeah, I, I applaud your wife. I think the hardest part is the caregiving. Uh, that, that's a tough one. Well, what do you think on that note? We're about 40 minutes into the podcast that we wrap it up. You said it all about, you know, what women, I, I thought that was so poignant, your advice to female financial advisors. Uh, and we're going to try to make an impact on all financial advisors to help them be better serving women and all things having to do with income. So yes, we are. to my co-host, I love you. And I can't tell you how excited I am that we, uh, we've launched this. Uh, right back at you. And I agree, we are going to make a difference for advisors. Yes, but for women and help them through these long years of retirement that should be joyful and awesome, not fear and risk ridden. You know, let's, let's make it fun again. Let's make retirement fun, Dave. That's what we need to do. I'm on board, Marsha. And uh, right. thank, thank you for listening, everyone. And thank you for joining Marsha and me for the first episode of the Dave and Marsha show. We'll see you next time.